start out with a song we do in our Sunday school class. It's called Wonderful Words of Life. Sing them over again to me. Wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see. Wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty. Teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for having this opportunity for these wonderful words of life to be so wonderfully in front of us that, Father, there are many that just to have this in our own language gave their lives that is possible. And, Father, we want to take full advantage of that this morning by opening and thinking and listening, Father, to what you have to say to us through your word. We thank you, Lord, for all your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for the, the help and trials, but there are some going through special trials that our Father far above and soul-crushing, and we ask you, Lord, to help these people. We pray for Sally and her battle with cancer and be with her husband Dave and his help to her. We pray, Father, for Pastor, for Phil, for John Benson, others that have had um, difficulties with their hearts, and we ask you, Lord, uh, just to help them and those that are taking care of them. Father, we pray for VBS coming up this week. We know that maybe amongst us there are many who received Christ as Savior when they were young, as children. And that, Father, this would be an opportunity to give that wonderful blessing to a new generation, too. We ask you, therefore, to bless it for that reason. And, Lord, uh, thank you for all those that have labored and worked to make this possible. Now we ask your blessing as we study these verses from the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. In Jesus' name, amen. I wanted to thank Bob Gilley for uh, filling in for my particular Sunday school class while Debbie and I were up in uh, Tennessee Mountains for uh, a week. And uh, wow, we had a great time up there. Visited a church. It was called uh, um, Rocky Branch Baptist Church, Independent Baptist Church up near Townsend. And uh, heard some powerful preaching. Uh, while we were up there. In fact, it was the best message, preaching-wise, that we've heard in all our years of going up into the mountains and visiting different churches up there. It's always very refreshing. Uh, but it's good to be home. And, uh, and we want to, uh, in this combined Sunday school, if you're wondering why we do this, it's because if you were to walk through the Faithful Servants Building, you would not recognize many of the rooms. They are ready for VBS or getting ready. And so Pastor has combined all the Sunday school classes today and graciously asked that I would uh, teach a lesson. And what I'm going to do is actually what I would normally do in the book of Galatians. And so we are right near the end of the book of Galatians. If you don't have a handout, probably too bad. We don't have any more. Sorry. Um, But if you do have one, you can follow along with us. First off, I wanted to point out we are memorizing Galatians chapter 3. And uh, this is the last verse. So all people in my class, be ready to quote it out loud next week, individually. Now, now actually, that's not going to be asked of you. But uh, if you can, Galatians 3 is a powerful chapter. It's amazing how many threes 
are powerful chapters. Genesis 3, John 3, Galatians 3, Romans 3. They are just powerful chapters. It's all a coincidence that they have the three. But uh, this, is, this is a great one. Here's um, Paul, as he's getting near the end of this chapter, this is what he says, talking about in the body of Christ. In other words, when God sees the believer, that believer is in his son, Jesus Christ. And because he sees his son, Jesus, and not you and I as far as our own righteousness goes, Paul says this, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, if you ever want to, if you're dealing with people and there's gender stuff that's going on, let me tell you, uh, the idea that there's male or female, that's what, male or female, that's what we stand for, because that's the way God created people. In his image, he created the male and female. But when it comes to how God sees us, he does not put us according to our social standing or any strata, especially in the Roman Empire, how things were arranged that way. How refreshing it was for the believers of that day that God was not going to look at them the way that the people around them looked at them. Oh, you're a slave, therefore the law doesn't apply equally to you as it would to a free person. In other words, they had all these different ways of stratifying their society, but when it came to being in Christ, there is no difference in the way God sees you if you're in his son, Jesus Christ. You know, this is a, we want that when we come before a court of law. Don't you want before the court of law there to be no particular, uh, just because favor given because of somebody's position in life? Well, God doesn't do that. When it comes to salvation, he looks at his son Jesus when he sees you because you're in Jesus. And he doesn't see if you're male or female. He doesn't see if you're a slave or if you're free. He doesn't see if you're a Jew or if you're a Gentile to decide whether you go to heaven. What he sees is, for the believer, his son, Jesus. And he accepts his son. He accepts you, therefore. And that's what Paul's saying here. The, the, the next little last verse, we have one more verse. Here it is in Galatians 3. It's verse 29. And accord it with me. Ready to begin. Galatians 3, 29. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs, according to the promise. So that is the last verse in Galatians 3. We'll uh, work on that next week. For uh, my class, if you would read Galatians 6, 11 through 18, the last part of the book. Let's review just a little bit of what we've been learning. Galatians, by the way, it, it's a letter written to an area, not to a church. Galatia is an area in what we would call the country of Turkey today. And it is, uh, therefore, a, a several towns, several cities that had churches. And so it is a, it is a not like uh, you would say the Philippians was one city, Philippi, that a letter was written to, but it was written to several. And if you want to see the context of the book of Galatians, you read Acts in chapters 13, 14, and 15, you see the context of why Paul is so passionate. When he writes the book of Galatians, he's passionate and he, I'm talking about it. he's passionate in the sense that he sounds angry. He sounds upset about what is happening back in Galatia. And he's writing this letter to fix it 
or to try to fix it. And so you got to read Acts to see exactly why he would do that. And chapter 15 is the first council of the church, the council of Jerusalem, so important. We learned that Galatians can be divided into three parts. The personal, that's chapters 1 and 2. Paul defends his apostleship. Then we learned about the doctrinal, that's chapters 3 and 4. And then the practical or the application is chapters 5 and 6. You know, um, one of the things about the doctrine that's being taught in the book of Galatians is that there, there's this issue of, are you saved only by faith or is it faith and works? There were people who came into the, to the churches at Galatia after Paul had left, and they came and they said, whatever Paul told you about faith in Christ, he didn't give you the rest of the story. Here's the rest of the story. It's not Paul Harvey. I'm not talking about that. It's the rest of the story is that you must keep the law of Moses. You have to be circumcised, which is symbolic of taking on the yoke of the law of Moses. You must keep the law of Moses to be saved. Faith in Christ plus works. That's the issue that's being addressed in the book of Galatians. That's the doctrine that Paul's bringing up. And the way he defends salvation by faith only is to say, yes, the law of Moses was about works. The law of Moses was about behavior, but not for salvation. You see, before Moses came the promise that God made to Abraham, and that was 430 years before Abraham, and it was by faith that Abraham was justified before God, not by his works. Genesis 15, 6 says, one of the most important verses in the book of Genesis, it says, and Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And Paul uses that verse to point out, long before God gave the law to Israel, he had justified Abraham because Abraham was willing to believe the promise that God made to him. And God saw the faith or the willingness of Abraham to believe the promise that God made and called him righteous based on that faith. And Paul is saying, that's the way we're saved today. I have the promise in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I have a promise. And without seeing Jesus, without seeing the cross, without seeing the empty tomb, without seeing any of that, I see the word and I believe it that I have everlasting life because Jesus died for me on that cross. And God justifies me. He declares me righteous based on my faith and a promise that he made to me and he made to you. So the issue is very pertinent. It's very much an issue still today. We would think that after the book of Galatians and after Acts 15, the first council, and Jerusalem of the church, that it's been solved. That there's no longer any issue about are we saved by faith or by works, but it's still an issue. What part do works have to do with our salvation? Okay, so the book of Galatians has been answering that. You know, there are kind of in a spectrum, there are views about how to be saved, in the, or let me say the Christian life. First, on this side, I'll, I'll say there's, there's a thing called legalism. And on this side of the spectrum is the belief that your Christian life determines your salvation. And it can be couched in all kinds of ways. It can be put into this way. No, you're not saved by works. But if you don't have works, you're not saved. That's one of those things you ever say, hey, come on in and, and get a subscription to this particular streaming service and we'll give you a free gift. What are you thinking when you hear that? 
It's not free if I don't get it without paying you something. And this idea that, okay, you're not saved by works, but if you don't have works, you're not saved, that is a form of legalism. All right, on the other end of the spectrum has been presented usually liberty. That we're saved by grace and not by works. That God looks at the faith that we place in Jesus Christ and justifies us or gives us eternal life based on that. But that's not really the way it is in the book of Galatians. There's legalism on this side of the spectrum. And liberty is in the middle. Because Paul says there's another enemy to the gospel of grace. There's another enemy, or you could say an error, when it comes to salvation. There's the error of legalism that the Christian life is part of salvation. You have to have the Christian life. If you aren't saved, the other end of the spectrum is a thing called license. License is that the Christian life, it doesn't matter what you do, there are no consequences. And the book of Galatians deals with both of those things. The idea of license is, no matter how you live, God doesn't care about your works. Now, both of those are enemies of liberty. In other words, the idea that you can, I can live as a believer now any way I please, and there are no consequences, that is an enemy of the gospel of grace. Because it brings disrepute on the gospel. It makes people say, oh, that's what it leads to. If you teach salvation is only by grace and through faith, people are going to live the way they please and think that there's no consequence, and it brings disrepute into the gospel. All right, so how does Paul deal with those two issues? Because Galatians does that. By the way, it would be interesting for me to be born into my father's family, my mom's family like I was, and to have this idea that now I'm your son, which nothing can change. It doesn't matter how I behave. Well, I can imagine as I was growing up that dad would not agree with that. That my father would interfere with those plans I had because I'm his son. All right, so the, 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 the legalism on one side of the spectrum and the, the license that's on the other side of the spectrum is really should be met in the middle with liberty. In other words, the Christian life doesn't have anything to do with whether we're saved or not. But neither does it mean that there are no consequences to how we live now. Now, that, those consequences, I'm sure when I disobeyed my father, I don't know if my sister's here or not. Okay, I can say this then. <laughs> I very rarely disobeyed my father. Okay, well, I, I would tell you this. I was always his son. No matter what I did, I never worried about no longer being Bob Frazier's son. And as a believer, that's true. You never, because of the Christian life, have to wonder, am I still a child of God? Am I still going to go to heaven? That's not the issue. But the belief that I could just do what I wanted without any consequences is different. So uh, let's see how, how Paul addresses these two. Look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. When he talks about legalism, he's going to compare it or contrast it with liberty. Look in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It says, what are the first two words? Stand fast, therefore, in the what? In the liberty 
wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. By the way, that yoke of bondage is religion. The yoke of bondage is the idea you can bind yourself back to God, and that's what Galatians has been dealing with. Become religious, and your Christian life will, will make sure you're saved and give you assurance. It has nothing to do. The Christian life has nothing to do with whether or not I am saved or keeping me saved or giving me assurance that I'm saved. Because the day I look at the way I'm living today as assurance of my salvation, what happens tomorrow when I'm not living that way? Then I must doubt my salvation. I know I'm saved because the Bible promised I'm saved. And so there's, there's a difference when it comes to that, the Christian life, and Paul says, hey, you Galatians, you once were pagans. You once were worshiping Jupiter and Saturn and Mars. You were worshiping all these false gods. You were bound with the bondage of religion. And then you found liberty in Jesus Christ. You found forgiveness. You found release. That can never come by all the offerings that you made, the Jupiter and all these other things. You found Jesus and you found liberty. Now, there are a group of people, it was Jews at the time, who were saying you have to become part of the, you have to become Jewish. You have to keep the law of Moses to be saved. That would be going back to bondage. It's a different religion, but all religions are the same. They only bring bondage. I'm not religious. I don't believe in religion. I used to be, you know, I, I would try to be good to go to heaven. And Debbie's not here, so I tried really hard to be good to go to heaven. But the fact is, religion only brings condemnation. What I have is a relationship with Jesus Christ that came through faith in his blood for my, you know, dying for my sins. All right, so look at chapter 5, what he says All right, I am, looking, I am looking for it. In chapter 5, verse 13, For brethren, it, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Now he's dealing in the book of Galatians with the other extreme, license. And in, the, in chapter 5, the rest of 5, in chapter 6, we are dealing with that particular aspect of the spectrum. And Paul's answer isn't to start becoming religious. It isn't to find a list of rules to start obeying and start you know, dressing a certain way and acting a certain way simply because you think that is going to give you salvation. Paul's answer is that we have a new birth. We have the Spirit of God living within us, and now we are told, walk in the Spirit. And if we do that, we won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So we have, you could say, two natures or two capacities living within us. I'll let this be the spirit and this be the flesh, the old nature. And these, only a Christian knows about these. Only a believer understands what I'm saying right now about them. These have a battle for control in my life. Paul says it this way. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. In other words, here the flesh wants to do what it would, and the spirit says no. And here the spirit wants to do what it would, 
And the flesh says, no, these are contrary to one another. They're not friends. They're not allies. They're a, they're a battle. Now, I, I, I tell you, every believer in here can say amen to that. Amen. And it's different from your, the old days before you were saved where your conscience told you, you know, hey, slap, slap. That was kind of a bad thing to say to that person. It's not that. This is something different. It's not conscience versus, you know, your morality. It is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit in us versus the flesh. All right, so that's how Paul says we walk in the Spirit. Do you know when you walk, where you've been and where you're going is not the focus. It's that next step. Try going upstairs looking way ahead at the horizon. Try going downstairs. Like, try walking and you know, looking at your phone. You know, they're, they're, you need to look at the next step. And when it comes to the Christian life, Paul is saying, this is a, just a step-by-step, moment-by-moment decision that you make to walk in the Spirit. If you look in the past where you've been, you'll get discouraged. If you look in the future where you think you're going, you'll get scared. But in the present, right now, Right now, what am I, what are you deciding about as a believer walking in the Spirit? Now, it's not a ooh kind of thing. Walking in the Spirit is seeing what God's Word says. I tell you what, you're here. You're sitting here. You got your Bible open, right? You're listening. Right? Well, that, that is part of walking in the Spirit because you want to know what God's Word says, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit. All right. So, yes, that's a... That's a not so quick review. <laughs> Let's look at these verses. Will you say these out loud for me? Or I got them up on the screen. You can read them in your Bible. Galatians 6, 6 or 10. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the spirit shall of the spirit reap life everlasting. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. All right, we're going to concentrate on this first verse. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Now, there are two, two people in view here, even though it sounds like only one. First, the two people are, are the person who is taught in the word. Now, this isn't taught in world philosophy. This isn't taught in world history. This isn't taught in all the other things that people can have. PhDs. I have a PhD, by the way. Post hole digger. <laughs> if you ever want to see it, come over to my house. I'll show you my PhD. But, you know, when it comes to those things, uh, there's, there's a person. It's taught in the word. And there are a lot of well-educated, and, and I'm not blaming or saying anything wrong with that. There are a lot of people have huge educations, but they've never been taught in the Word. In that sense, they're still ignorant. It says, let him that is taught in the Word. And then the second person that is implied here is the person who teaches the Word. Right? Because it says, those that are taught in the Word should communicate good things to those who teach the Word. That's what it's saying. Paul's saying that that should happen. In other words, there are two responsibilities in here, in view in here. The person who teaches should teach in the Word. And the second responsibility is the person who's taught in the Word should support the teacher of the Word. 
All right. This is not something that, you know, you, you would think, okay, uh, that's rocket science. It's not rocket science. It's saying if we receive from someone the blessing of knowing and learning the Word of God, being educated in the Word of God, then it would only be reasonable that we reciprocate in some way good things to that person who does that. Now, let's start first about the person who teaches the Word. This is, this is my goal. My goal is not to use the Bible when I teach the Bible. I didn't misphrase that. I don't want to use the Bible when I teach the Bible. If I do, I'm not teaching the Word. Let me give you an example of what using the Bible would be like. If I take a Bible verse and use that as my diving board in order to get into my real lesson, in other words, what I decided ahead of time and based on my human wisdom, based on my human perception of what needs to be talked about, but I find a Bible verse that kind of supports that, and I use that as my diving board to get down into my real lesson. I am using the Word, but not teaching the Word. Now, I'm using the word using in the sense of using it, like when someone complains, you're just using me. You understand? I think everybody would agree, don't use God. Don't think he's a genie that, hey, I'm in big trouble right now. Let me get God on my side. Don't use God. Don't use the Bible in that sense. So the way it's said here in the notes is this. Don't use the Bible as a diving board in your lesson. The Bible is the lesson. Do you see a difference? The Bible is the lesson. All that teach the Bible should remember not to use the Bible the Bible is the lesson, not my human wisdom, not my human perception about it. For instance, if I told you, you know, the Bible says, for we are all the children of God. Actually, it says, for ye are all the children of God. Therefore, why do we have division? Why are we excluding people? And I could go on and on about that. By the way, I, I, those are exact words from Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For ye are all the children of God. And then I jump into my lesson about inclusion and all these things. If I do that, I am using the Bible, but I'm not teaching the Bible because the rest of the verse says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Those prepositional phrases that follow that are very important. All right, so you understand, using the Bible is not the same thing as teaching the Word. And the people who have that as their habit of learning the Bible, so-called learning the Bible, are not taught in the Word. All they have is somebody's personal wisdom and perception. It's like a great coach of a great football team gives them a, gives them a great you know, halftime pep talk, and they get out there and they win. And that's what the person views themselves as. But we're not to do that. We're to be teachers in the Word. There's another error. And that's when you use, or I would use the Bible to make my lesson fit the Bible. In other words, if that's the Bible, and I'm thinking my lesson. Okay, so here's my lesson. I decided I want to tell this because those people really need to hear it. All right, all right. Let me fit that into the Bible. I've seen that happen. I've heard it happen. Um, uh, in, in the book of Exodus, it talks about a family. 
or that's actually numbers. It talks about a family, Korah and his family, who decided to rebel against the authority of Moses. And when the, uh, they rebelled against the authority of Moses, Moses confronted them, and the Lord opened up the ground and swallowed them alive. I've heard that given to little kids with the implication that if you don't submit to authority, that's what's going to happen to you. Do you know what? They took a lesson. I want to teach kids to submit to authority, which is an important, very important lesson. But to use the Bible to teach that in a way that is out of its context. Do you know the people who were swallowed alive had seen Moses exalted in so many ways by the Lord and used greatly of him in Egypt with the plagues and in the time that they spent in the wilderness, all the miracles that he did. They have seen it with their own eyes. And then they say, we don't think God is with you. <laughs> God held him accountable. To whom much is given, much is what? Oh, great. A little child of six or seven hasn't seen all that. And to use those verses to get them to fear authority is, is to use the Bible but not teach the Bible. Now, right now, one on Prime, I'm not, I'm not advertising this show, but one of the top shows in the nation is about Bill Gothard. And Bill Gothard's seminars and his teachings. And I know that if you were to, I'm not saying you should watch it. <laughs> Many thousands, if not millions of Americans are watching it. And they think that's what you believe. Because one of his big teachings was about authority. And the importance of authority. But that doesn't mean it was biblical. So there's, there's, there's an important step that we need to take when it comes to the teachers of the Word, that we teach the Word, not our opinion. Don't use the Bible. Don't use the Bible as a weapon. Listen, kid, if you don't do what God says, the ground's going to swallow you up too. Boom! All right, that is using the Bible, but it's not teaching the Bible. All right, here's another thing. He says in verses 7 through 9, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. The direct application of these verses is the exhortation in chapter 6, verse 6. In other words, have you ever heard verse 7, verses 8, and verse 9 all by themselves? I have. I've taught them that way many times. But it's interesting when you teach a book, how many times you have to look at its context. And Paul has just said, let those who are taught in the word communicate to the one who teaches in all good things. And then he says in the next verse, be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. There's a connection. Paul's just not writing a bunch of Proverbs. Like the book of Proverbs, many times the things just go from one topic to another. This idea of sowing and reaping has a lot to do with the idea of supporting your pastor. You see, when those who have dedicated their lives full-time, they don't have a career. They don't have a job. Sometimes they don't get all the skills that those who are out in the workplace get. They don't have all those maybe opportunities for advancement and all those kinds of things. But they dedicated themselves to teaching the Word, and they do that full-time. It only makes sense that those who are being taught support them. That's what Paul's saying. And it's a very revolutionary way, he says, to do this. You see, in, in the Jewish religion... It was in the law of Moses. You had to pay the tithes. In the Jewish religion, you had to make the offerings. And the Levites and the priests were accepted by that. That was the law of Moses. 
in the, in the paganism, they had fees every time they brought an offering. They had fees they had to pay. And yet Paul doesn't say that it's going to be a tax put on you to support your pastor. What he says is it only makes sense that you support your pastor because don't be deceived. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The implication is here, when we support our pastor and we come and we hear the word of God and we hear it taught by a man who has the time, he's not distracted by, you know, having to do all the things of a job for 40 hours or more during the week and then prepare a message. But he's concentrating on the word of God and teaching the word of God. When we support that person, we are sowing. That money that goes towards that, that money, that effort, or those things that go towards the support of the pastor so we can hear the word of God full time. Because, you know, I know as a, as a Sunday school teacher, those, those distractions of working full time, you can't put into it what you really want to. We need somebody. We need somebody. You know, Paul, or excuse me, Peter had said it this way in Acts chapter 6 when, you know, there were problems amongst the church with ministration to the Grecian widows and all this. They say this, the apostles say, it is not fit that we leave the word and prayer to minister to tables. And so they had ministers, administrators come along. And they took care of those physical needs and those kinds of things so they could concentrate on the word of God. And when we give, we're sowing. We're giving, therefore, he says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And it must be the Galatians class. Listen, classes. It must have been the Galatians were being lax. That somewhere those false teachers that came in were getting support that used to go to the teachers of the truth, of the word. And they were going out and getting their jobs and all that kind of stuff. And it was a vicious spiral downwards in the church because the teachers weren't able to prepare and prepare the people for the false doctrine. You think of all the particular issues that are coming up today, not just dealing with marriage and gender and all those things. How do you, how do you answer that from Scripture? How, if we don't have somebody teaching us the Bible, we'll be, I don't know. I, and, and it is not good for us if we sow to the flesh. In other words, let's take the money that we would give to support a full-time pastor and those things, and let's give it to our own needs. Those things are just so temporary. But when we support and we have somebody teaching us the word and we're supporting them we're sowing to the spirit and those that sow to the spirit shall reap a life everlasting in other words not that you get eternal life but that you will have things that last beyond this time now read those verses in the context of sowing and reaping in the sense of supporting a full-time teacher of the word and you'll see that that's that's a not the, not the only application for it. Of course, it's a general application. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. That could be in anything. But Paul's using it about learning the Word of God. And if you think, well, I'll just listen online. I can go and listen online. You know those people that you listen to online? They do not have any accountability to you or to anybody. A lot of times they're just there, and they could be, they, who knows what they're doing? But when we have a pastor who lives right here in our city, Lives right here in our town. You see him at Walmart. Right? <laughs> there's an accountability. There's, there's, there's this, okay, we have this person that we can go talk to face to face. You know, that, that is a special thing. It is not replaced by something online. Now, there might be supplements. 
But that's not only the way to look at it. Okay, so, so for he that sold to his flesh, showed the flesh reap corruption, but that he that sold to the spirit, showed the spirit reap life everlasting. Let us not be wearying well doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. I, I just need to close really with this idea. Paul says, us. Let us. Right? What does that imply about Paul when he says, let us not be weary in well doing? Was he ever weary? Was he ever tempted to quit? He says, don't, don't do that. Let us not be weary and well doing. Do season we shall reap. If you are sitting day or Sunday after Sunday and you're getting the scriptures, you're going to Sunday school, you're going to those things, and you're getting the scriptures, and you don't see any change right away, don't get weary in that well doing. Do season we shall reap if we faint not. I got one, one pet peeve, and it's just me. I'm sure. Your Bible, a hard copy, is special. Make it special. You can write in it. God's not going to zap you to a crispy critter if you write in your Bible, unless you're doodling while somebody's talking. But I'm talking about, put the date that you trusted Christ in there. Put the date that you decided to serve the Lord. You don't have to make it a diary and things like, I've done a couple funerals and it's always a joy to walk up to the family and say, hey, do you have uh, Florence's Bible? Yes, I took it and looked through it. And it's nice to be able to tell the people that were there, do you know she underlined this verse? She, she wrote a date next to it. This was an important companion to her in her life. And this is my pet peeve. I don't think your phone could ever do that. So, yeah, use a phone and follow along, those kind of things. But it's good to have a hard copy and, uh, and to make it personal. Make it your Bible. You might wear it out, and then you, you don't throw it away. You store it. It becomes like, a, it's like a, a time capsule of your spiritual life. And then final thing Paul says here. As we have, therefore, opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them of the household of faith. People ask, what's the, what's the purpose of a church? This is a good verse to underline. What's the purpose of a church? There are people who say, socially, the church is supposed to feed the poor. Let me just really simplify it. And then some say the purpose of the church is to preach the gospel. Well, Paul's answer here is, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men. But he's talking about the individual church members. In other words, among the church members, there are opportunities that arise, and we should do good. We should be helpful. We should be kind to all. Jesus, when he fed the 5,000, that was just the men. When he fed the 5,000, were there those that didn't believe in him there? Were there those that hated him maybe there? There were, there were probably people there just to get the food. They had no idea what was coming. Did he feed them? Yes. All right, so Paul was obviously saying, as opportunity arises, do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. In other words, the first, you could say, attention should be paid to the body of Christ. The things that are done for those that are outside the body of Christ need to be done, but not to the exclusion of taking care of the body of Christ first. Yes, those things should be done, but... That is not the purpose of the church. As an organization, the local church's purpose is to preach the word, to teach the gospel, 
to win people to Christ and disciple them. The individual members do the good deeds as opportunity arises. But that never becomes the focus of the pulpit and the church. I say that because I grew up in a church that actually sent us as little kids out to collect for UNICEF. Not to give the gospel, but to collect for the United Nations. That was the purpose of our church. That's not what Paul's saying here. Well, let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this time to spend in your word and the book of Galatians in its great power. Father, thank you for how relevant it is to what we see today and face. Now bless us in the service to follow. Thank you for our pastor, Lord. Thank you for someone who teaches the word. And as uh, years go by, people can be prepared for the many issues that, that come up in our world even today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.